Well, today as part of our Overflow series, we could not be more thrilled uh, to welcome back to First Christian, a man that honestly doesn't need a whole lot of introduction for a lot of you because he served as the lead pastor for 29 years leading up till last summer. And uh, not only lead pastor for you all, or many of you all, uh, but honestly, 19 of those 29 years, he was my pastor, uh, my friend, my boss, but also my mentor. And with that idea that out of all the years of experience that he has been overflowing of his heart for this congregation, I'm excited for us today to get to hear uh, from Pastor Wayne Kent uh, for the overflow of what he has for you and for me in this day and the days ahead. So with this idea in mind, would you welcome uh, to the First Christian Church stage, Pastor Wayne Kent. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. It's good to be with you today. And um, I want to welcome all of you here today in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome to all of you here in the West. To those of, us, of you who are joining us in the East and also online, it's indeed a pleasure to be here with you. It's good to be home. And um, as most of you know, uh, Leslie and I, we, I, I left my full-time ministry here in July of last year, and uh, it's not, pe people ask me, how's retirement going? And I don't know what that's like yet, to be honest, because it feels like I've been more busy than ever. Um, we were involved in a seven-month ministry. I was preaching for First Christian Church Clinton uh, in the midst of a pastoral transition up there. And so that's complete now. I also, maybe you didn't know, but I walked across the, the uh, Spain's Camino de Santiago. It's a walk that's 1,200 years long, 1,200 years old. And um, I felt at various points it did feel like 1,200 years long. The version I took, I started at the Spanish-Portuguese border and walked my way. I hiked my way up the Atlantic coast and ended up, it ends uh, whichever way you go at the cathedral up in a city in the northwestern part of Spain called Santiago de Compostela. There's a cathedral there. And I was quite pleased. I made it there with two goals in mind, to get there without getting lost, all by myself. I didn't go with a group, literally hiked my way there. And then secondly, could I get there without having any blisters? And I did that as well. So that was good. As a matter of fact, all that hiking, all those miles has led to somewhat of a, a problem. I think I've developed a hiking addiction. Um, I've... Um, I've started seeing a counselor about it, but I'm not out of the woods yet on that one. Oh, so you didn't groan enough. You need to hear it again just so you can groan, okay? I've developed a habit that's becoming an ongoing problem, this hiking business. It's, an, it's become an addiction. Listen, the line is coming up. I'm seeing a counselor, but I'm not out of the woods yet. Uh, oh, perfect. You did it on cue. I love it. Perfect. All right. Um, and by the way, did you know that when it comes to hiking through the woods, you can only hike halfway in because once you get to halfway, you're walking out. Oh, that was even worse of a groan. Come on. So thank you for the invitation to step into Brian's pulpit, although I don't know if it's his pulpit anymore than it was my pulpit for all the years that I served this church. I'm quite aware that this space of opening God's Word for this congregation doesn't belong. It never belonged to me. The pulpit was simply borrowed from the congregation of First Christian Church, and it was my pleasure to serve since 1994, and so it's good to be back. In regards to Brian, I've watched and participated in the life of the staff over the last year, and 
I'm really proud of all that's going on around here. And in case you're not aware, Brian had back surgery a week ago Friday, and he is doing quite well. He's here with us today. And uh, in regards to his pain, he is out of the woods, so that's good news, all right? Anyway, so enough of all of that. I want to start with this today. This is a, um, as you can see, it's a used uh, vegetable can. It's a heater, it's a stove, and it is a candle. Three things, a heater, a stove, and a candle. And you're asking, what's with this? Well, one of the things that Leslie and I have been doing, we've now been there into, into Poland and Ukraine three times in the last year since the war broke out in Ukraine. We've been involved in humanitarian work and ministry there on your behalf. You have given thousands of dollars to that endeavor, and I want to say thank you for that. And I want you to catch a video that will explain what this used soup can does. Watch the screens, please. These used soup cans are filled with rolled cardboard, some of it popping out the top, and they're filled with, then filled with wax and shipped to people struggling with cooking, heating, and light after sunset. This little soup can of wax and the cardboard inside it can heat a room for up to six to eight hours, while it also provides light and it's a source of cooking. They are made by the thousands. They are made by the thousands by Ukrainian refugees and Polish volunteers in Poland. We carried many of them across the border into Ukraine. We also purchased, bundled, and wrapped some eight tons of food. Half of it was distributed to refugees in Ukraine in the West, people we met. See, while they're still in Ukraine, their homes in the eastern part of the nation have been destroyed. They have run from their lives from eastern Ukraine, where the bombs are falling, to western Ukraine. There's relative safety there compared to the east. We packaged the other half at a distribution center in western Ukraine, and within a couple days we saw photos of that food at the eastern front. The war in Ukraine has brought untold devastation, suffering, and death to countless people. Now it's 16, 17 months into the war. More than 9,000 civilians have been killed, and that's in addition to the 3,400 who were killed in Crimea beginning in 2014 up until the present time. There are orphans, many of them. Ukrainian re authorities recently reached out to one of our Polish partners, and Ukraine said, we need a place in Poland for 300 children aged five through 14. They're all school-aged. We don't know if they're orphans per se. Their parents have simply disappeared since the war started in February of last year. Perhaps the parents are dead, or at the very least transported further east into Russian territory. Our friend Jacek has placed those children in 80 foster homes throughout southern Poland. And I wonder what those children make of the war that has stolen their parents and their formerly carefree childhoods. The people of Ukraine are tired. They are tired of bread lines in some settings. School, should not, school children not in school, they're tired of air raids. When we crossed the border from Poland to Ukraine, we quickly encountered life in a war nation. There were six of us from the U.S. traveling as part of our team, three women and three men. That meant the housing plan was for three same-gendered people per bedroom, three men in one room, three women in another. And we discovered very quickly what war is like, because all was well until the air raid sirens blasted us awake in the early hours of the morning, or at least it blasted five of the six of us awake. Here's our videographer, Logan Ray, telling his part of the story. So around uh, like 5 a.m., wake up to the sirens just absolutely blaring. Um, 
and all I remember is looking around the room and it's just me and Ryan that's awake. The third person, uh, being Wayne, was not. He was back in his little little side, still asleep, trying to figure out, like, okay, I should probably wake him up. Like, this is a big deal, I should probably go get him. Um, so I go over to him, I try to start off all general gig. Hey, Wayne, Wayne, we should, we should do something. Um, nothing. So what I end up doing is I start, I start to like, Wayne, Wayne, we gotta go. Siren is going off, we gotta figure out something. And what I remember was not such a general, like, Oh, I'm awake, what do we need to do? It's a alert, freaking out, looking to the left, looking right, what's going on? Which is, if you know Wayne, that's not like him whatsoever. So, um, he gets up, checks his phone, sees that Leslie's been texting him saying like, do you hear that? What do we do? What are, what's going on? And so he gets up, go checks on her, makes sure the rest of the people are okay. and. Obviously everything is fine, but I do have to say this is quite funny going from, oh my gosh, are we gonna die to seeing your pastor about to jump out of his pants. So, it's quite a good time. Thank you for sending us. Thank you for caring for the people of Ukraine. Your gifts made a significant difference. Your gifts are used to feed people daily, to teach young people to speak Polish so they can attend public schools. Your generosity is making a difference in the lives of hundreds of Ukrainian children. They are refugees. This is particularly the case for pre-K children. We are feeding hundreds per day at a cost of $4 per day per child. They are in daycare centers so that their Ukrainian mothers can work. After all, their fathers, grandfathers, and adult brothers remain in Ukraine for the sake of the fight. And those children, join with me in thanking you. So thank, thank you, First Christian Church. Seriously. Um, you've made a significant difference. I have one other observation that um, I felt was inappropriate to show you photos. Um, the war in Ukraine has now moved past 500 days. We passed 500 days earlier on in July. That's 500 days of pain and sorrow for that nation. We saw it firsthand. Um, it means 9,000 civilians have been killed, more than 500 children, and so many young soldiers have died, most of them young men. Now, trip in May took us through small town after small town, and You'd go, as you, as you would see here in the U.S., you go into a small town, you're going to drive past a cemetery somewhere along the line, and there were so many fresh graves. And most of those graves had a, a, a flagpole with the Ukrainian flag flying over it, indicating it was, the, it was the grave of a soldier who had died in the war. Each flag represented the death of that person and the pain and grief for spouses, for children, for parents, and for families. It was sobering. Each little village displayed this pain, and the conversation in our vehicles would grow quiet, legitimately so, as we passed through each cemetery. So thank you. The people of Ukraine thank you, and I say thank you for providing us with the resources to both go and then to help them. Thank you for sending us. Thank you for your generosity of spirit for your generosity of prayer, and for the generosity of your pocketbook. We're headed back to Poland and Ukraine on your behalf in October. And as we go back, there's something that's um, very interesting to me that I've seen now in the three trips that we've taken over there. 
You may recall I was in, in Poland within the first three weeks of the war starting in March of last year. In both nations, in Ukraine and Poland, we've worked with the followers of Jesus Christ. Nine million Ukrainians have crossed the border into Poland, refugees. And uh, the people we've worked with are either work, help, helping refugees or they are refugees helping refugees. And there's a trait in their lives that bears some observation and some reflection on our part. It's actually found in Scripture. If you look with me in Deuteronomy chapter 6, a passage of Scripture that's some almost 3,500 years old, Moses, the leader of the nation of ancient Israel, is speaking to them, and he says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you, lie, when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Maybe you've seen that some Jewish people today have these little square boxes that they tie around their heads at times or they, they hold them and they are bound to their arms. They're following this idea right here. But at this point, we've got the instructions of what to do with these commandments, but we don't know what the commandments are yet, according to Moses. He says, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And when the Lord bring, your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to people like generations long ago of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, when, when, the, Lord land, when the Lord brings you into this land, he swore to give you, this land is going to be a land with flourishing cities you didn't build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you didn't provide, wells you didn't dig, vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant. When you get all that, when you eat and are satisfied, here's the command. Be careful you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. It's a passage about legacy. It's a passage about families. It's about faith. It's about intergenerational faith. He says, impress these ideas upon your children. Make certain that these ideas are part of your ongoing conversation and here's how this passage relates to my observation of what we've seen in the parenting generation of Poles and Ukrainians right now in 2023. Those people over there are what I would call first-generation parents. And you go, well, what do you mean by first-generation parents? I mean, if you're a parent, you're a first-generation parent. Well, here's what I mean in this case. Those in Poland and Ukraine right now who have younger children are the first generation of parents who've lived in freedom and democracy since for the last 100 years, since before the 1930s, before World War II. They're the first generation of adults who grew up during communism and then became adults after the Berlin Wall came down and Soviet-style communism failed. And with that massive shift in societal ethos and thinking, new wealth, surprising new wealth, has come. And I hear it from the adults who are parents there with young children today. They're, they're, they're men and women from their 20s to their 40s, and they echo what we just read. They wonder about the faith of their children. See, that passage in Deuteronomy, it's Moses' final sermon. He's been, he's been hanging out with the people of Israel for more than 40 years. He's led them out of slavery. He's walked with them through the, through the Sinai Peninsula. And this, is, this passage of Scripture is what we call the Shema. Today, in most homes, it's in Jewish homes, it's written on a t piece of paper, and that paper is rolled up into a scroll, and then it's put in a little case called a mezuzah. 
a small container attached to the frame of the door's family home to do what Moses says to do, attach this to the doorpost of your house. We have one in our home. It's the last thing you see as you leave. Ah, by the way, it doesn't normally have that red circle around it. I just want you to... <laughs> but I wanted you to know what it was. It's the last thing you see as you walk out the front door and the first thing you come across as you arrive in our home. It's an indication of the intent of our family that we will serve God. The Shema is a statement of faith for Jewish people. They would typically pray it at least once in the morning and at least once at night, if not more often throughout the day. And it's pr commonly prayed with a hand covering the eyes. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. It means, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. This God is one God. That's such a shift in the ancient world to have only one God. Such a change. As a matter of fact, you'll hear it in a song later on in the worship service. And may I suggest you try saying it with me in Hebrew, and you can say, hey, we, we spoke Hebrew today. So just repeat it after me. Shema, Shema. Israel, Israel. Adonai. Adonai, and here's the hard word, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. You got to have the sound for the H. All right, you got that right? Let's try it a little faster now. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Why would Moses want his nation to say that at least twice a day? Well, he was concerned about the new wealth that was coming to the country, to the nation. They'd been 400 years of slavery. They'd had 40 years of wandering through the Sinai wilderness. And a new generation was about to leave that history in the dust of the desert. Seriously, of everybody who left Egypt, only two people made it into the promised land. They were all 40 years and younger. And through God's help, they would take on cities they didn't build. They'd live in houses they didn't construct. They'd eat from farmland and crops they didn't plant. They'd have permanent homes. They'd be young parents, and new wealth would be their story. And in the middle of that reality, Moses was worried you'd be, it'd be easy to forget God's intervention in our nation's story. He feared that their new wealth would mean less reliance on God. Because if you have no needs... It's easy to rely on yourself. Isn't it when we're in crisis or in some sort of struggle that we go, hey, God, do you, I, I need to remember you, and God, I need to know who you are. That's when we get humble, and they're about to live without any crises. Now, in case you misunderstand me, I'm not suggesting that wealth is wrong. As a matter of fact, throughout Scripture, you have these cases. The people of Israel, as they move into the promised land, they're going to become wealthy. God is giving that wealth to them. The wealth that is coming their way is good news. It's a gift of God. Abundant wealth doesn't mean, I, I would caution you though, that abundant wealth doesn't mean that God loves us more than people who aren't wealthy. And if you're not wealthy, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. But those of us who have resources like, can I just say Americans? We must see those resources in the way Moses instructed his people to see them. To see wealth as a graceful gift from God. And with that, we are to do good things. We are to accomplish good. We are to promote goodness with this wealth in the lives of other people. And that's what we saw in Poland and in Ukraine, but particularly at the churches in Poland. 
those brothers and sisters there, your fellow brothers and sisters, are sacrificially helping Ukrainian refugees. Here's why. Because 34 years ago, Poland was a poor nation caught in the snare of the Soviet communist bloc. And when the wall came down in 1989, capitalism arrived in Poland, and the nation changed dramatically overnight. Depending on what data you review, they went from a poor nation to today, they are anywhere between the 19th and the 22nd most wealthy nation in the world. And with all that wealth comes less need, less reliance on God. And the Polish Christian parents of today are the ones who were born at the end of poverty, at the end of the communist era. They were born in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. And they have a concern for their children. Will they seek God through Jesus Christ despite our nation's new wealth, despite our family's wealth? Moses cautioned his nation. The Poles are looking at their kids. And what's our approach here in the U.S.? When we live, if I may say, in the relative wealth of the U.S., and we've lived in it for generation after generation, God has blessed this land year after year, decade after decade, for hundreds of years. Think about how it plays out in our church. We're 189 years old now, right? Uh, we go back to 1834. And I assume that should Jesus' second coming not happen soon, that we would like this church to um, continue ministry for another 189 years. But we are far more well-off than we were 189 years ago when we were established in 1834. And I wonder, it's a question that you can chat about over lunch. Do we as a congregation pay as much attention to Moses' concern of raising the next generation in faith? Will the next generation depend on houses they didn't build, farmland they didn't clear, church buildings they inherited, rather than the lives they sacrificed to build in honor to God? Will they rely on God? Moses' challenge to the people of ancient Israel sets up faith as intergenerational. Moses says, adults teach the children. And in our present day and time, the, the young generation has some real challenges in front of them. The next generation coming our way is known as the Alpha Generation. They were children who are born from 2010 on. So the oldest of them is just 13 years of age. But within 10 years, they'll, they'll begin to be adults, of course. By two years from now, they'll be the largest block of people in the world. There'll be 2 billion children under the age of 15 by 2025 in this Alpha Generation. The major thing that will have shaped all of that generation is the COVID pandemic worldwide. Data shows they will start their marriages later than any other generation. Data says that in their 20s, they will not necessarily start families, but more so because of COVID and the impact and so forth and so on, their careers will be more important to them than starting families until later in life. And I want to know, will those children who have been born in that period of time and those who are a little bit older than them, will our children follow Jesus? Will they follow Jesus as teenagers, as adults, and when they become parents themselves? I want to know that. And what will we as adults do? As a church, as parents, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles and friends, and not just biological parents, what will we as the adults of today, how are Christian adults of today planning for the next generation of Jesus Christ's followers? What are we doing? The answer is not easy, but the place to start is to acknowledge the task in front of us. We want our children to follow Jesus. We want their faith then to be passed on to the next generation. And we pray that they will seek God always. 
And they will heed the word of Moses, saying, just because you got a lot of stuff, don't forget who God is. I pray that they will be generous to those in need in the same way you demonstrated generosity to the refugees in Poland and Ukraine. I, will ch- I pray they will choose to have the fruit of the Spirit in their lives long before they seek their own wealth. You know, the fruit of the Spirit, you may be familiar with that. I pray our children will demonstrate love, joy, peace, forbearance. In other words, the ability to get along with others. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I pray they will pass those traits along to their, to their children. And adults of today, what are we doing to demonstrate that for them? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in our lives? Sometimes I wonder, given how Christians act on social media platforms, but probably that's another sermon. (laughs) Brian, good luck with that. (laughs) Are we teaching our children to pray, to act in kindness and self-control, to practice gentleness, to demonstrate love in a culture that usually chooses the exact opposite of the fruit of the Spirit? I pray they and us will learn the lessons of Moses, remembering God's care in all things. And what are we teaching? What are the lessons they are learning? Here's what I mean. I want you to look at a map from Google Satellite. It's a map of a farm in northern New Jersey. And um, you can see the crops planted in orderly rows, all set for harvest. Except those crops haven't been harvested yet. They were planted a long time ago, 1928. The crop is 95 years old and it's not been harvested yet. Why? Why? Well, it's Chester Township, northern New Jersey, a township of 7,500 people. They state, Chester Township says, we are a people who have large amounts of land that is either not developed or it's used for farming. We have many Victorian-style homes and large lots. In other words, we have a lot of trees. And that, what you see there, is a tree farm there. Well, sort of a tree farm. It's a telephone pole tree farm. Are they growing telephone poles? It looks like it, but they're not exactly. Take a look at the next slide. In 1928, Bell Telephone Laboratories, a precursor to AT&T, needed to understand how telephones work, or perhaps more importantly, how they don't work. Because the tele- in, in 1928, 95 years ago, the telephone network is spreading across the United States, and they're putting up telephone poles, and um, they want to know, okay, what's the best kind of wood to use? What's the best tree? Because if you think about it, a telephone pole is a dead tree. And dead trees do what? They rot. And so they chose this township in New Jersey. They, they bought 100 acres and they said, we're going to use this land as a test plot because it has all kinds of weather. It has harsh, harsh winters. So there's snow and ice. It gets lots of rain. It has unbearable heat in the summer. We want to know what wood will stand up to um, being a telephone pole in those settings. Each tree was tagged, and the metal plate adorned, you know, was sitting on the tree. And then um, once a year, engineers would come, and they'd look at the dead trees planted in the ground. Uh, they'd record the condition. Sometimes they'd take a core sample out of, the, out of the pole, or other times they'd simply lift the pole out of the ground and take the whole thing apart. And today, the telephone pole farm still exists, but it isn't used by Bell or AT&T any longer. You know why? Because decade after decade, they started looking up the research and the lessons that they'd learned, and they put those lessons in practice. And so when you drive out of the parking lot today, if you're here on campus, you'll, um, you'll see telephone poles on your right and your left, north and south, and those telephone poles that are there are there based on the research, based on the lessons that are now 95 years old. 
Every time you pass a telephone pole this week, it's, based on, it's standing there based on the lessons of that tree farm that's 95 years old. The lessons of 95 years ago impact our culture today. I have a question. The lessons of Moses are coming up on 3,500 years old. What are we doing with them? His research stated, teach the next generation. Teach them about God. Teach our children about God's care, about God's faithfulness. Develop habits in our children's lives that will carry them into their role as adults. Are we doing that well, guys? Because they're going to live in homes they didn't necessarily build. They're going to worship in churches they, didn't, they inherited. And in our culture, they might even work on farmlands they didn't have to clear. One, well, one last thing that might help you in this. You're aware, I suspect, that prior to being a pastor, um, Les and I were involved in ministry in Eastern Europe. We were involved in ministry in Poland and Ukraine back in the 70s and 80s. And I began working there as a single man traveling with a Christian band. And when I was in the band, before Leslie and I were married in 1979, I had my 20th and my 21st birthday in Moscow. Can you believe that? Crazy stuff. In 1979, in November of 1979, I was a single man in Leningrad traveling with the band. And uh, we were doing a concert in the only evangelical church in Leningrad, what is now St. Petersburg, a Baptist church there. And after the concert, this old guy comes up to me, and uh, he's really old. He, he had gray, messed up hair, unshaven face, and um, I mean, he, he was at least 65 years old. <laughs> and he grabbed me by the shoulders, and he started sobbing. And he's got stuff coming, wet stuff coming out of his eyes, out of his nose, and I'm going, and he's holding me this close, and I'm way too close to him at this point. I'm going, who is this old guy? And he's blabbering, I mean, just sobbing and telling me this story in Russian. I have no idea what he's saying. And I'm looking at the translator, and he's just trying to take it all in. And at the very end, he, in true Eastern European style, he finishes his story, and then without any, he didn't even ask me, he pulls me in and leaves a wet one right on my lips. And it was way, way too wet. I'm telling you that. <laughs> and I'm kind of like going, what has just happened to me? The translator says to me, this man, for years, going back to 1917 when the communists took over Russia, they've been saying that Christianity has been dying in the West and there are no young people serving Jesus. And here you are, this young kid, that's 21. It's the week I turned 21. He's been praying for the people and for the young people of the West that they would know Jesus. He's been praying for decades. And here you are, tell him this congregation about Jesus. And you are the answer to his prayers. Young people from the West are serving Jesus, and the next generation of Christians is alive and well. And now, I'm the old guy. I've got the gray hair. I don't have water coming out of my eyes. Or, uh, I'm, I'm pretty cl clean. I'm not going to kiss anybody today, I don't think. But nonetheless, there are days since I'm not in the office, and I'm sort of retired at this point, where I don't shave, and I, I look like this old guy. I get it. I still don't speak Russian, but I know the emotion this man faced. 
I know of his concern for the next generation to follow Jesus. And I pray the next generation of First Christian Church out of the overflow of what I've experienced in the last year, I pray the next generation of this church serves Jesus and would declare with Moses, Shema Israel, the Lord our God is God. God is one. And to seal that as our prayer today, I invite you to hear what Tori and Lacey have to sing for us as our, as our prayer today.